0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve.
1: Hi, I'm Jeff Stein.
0: And I'm Gene Mazerve.
1: We're devoting the entire Spy Talk podcast this week to my interview with Leon Panetta. He's had an extraordinarily broad and deep career in Washington, first as a congressman, later as a budget director in the White House, chief of staff to President Clinton, and of course, CIA director and secretary of defense.
0: And you guys cover the globe in this conversation from Afghanistan to Iran, China, Russia, cyber election interference. You talked about it all.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of stuff in that 55 minutes. Of course, the pinnacle of his career was the elimination of Osama bin Laden in May 2011. But there were failures on his watch, too, as he admits, in Afghanistan and in diagnosing correctly Arab Spring. In any event, I started with a question that put him back on his heels a little bit. Welcome, Secretary Panetta. It's such a great pleasure to have you aboard here for our fifth Spy Talk podcast. Let's get right to it. The current CIA director, Bill Burns, has written that his greatest professional and moral regret was not doing more to stop President Bush from invading Iraq in 2003, when he was a senior State Department official, what's your greatest regret? Do you regret supporting, for example, President Obama's decision to send 30,000 more troops to Afghanistan in 2009? That hasn't turned out too well.
2: Well, you 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 generally go through a, a number of challenges uh, in each administration I've been a part of, whether it's the Clinton administration or whether it's the Obama administration. Uh, generally, you know, I I really believe that whether it was President Clinton or President Obama, that both of them in the end tried to make decisions that they felt were in the interest of the country. Uh, and whether you agree or disagree with them, uh, in the end, uh, I really think that they did what they thought uh, was the right thing to do. Uh, you know, having having said that, uh, obviously uh, we made a made a, a you know a, a couple mistakes that I I have always stuck in my mind. One is, frankly, with the Arab Spring. Uh, the Arab Spring happened. Uh, there were a lot of uh, a lot of demonstrations. A lot of young people were taking to the streets Uh, and it was a tremendous opportunity uh, to really try to do some good in that part of the world. Uh, And there really was, there were two things that, uh, that didn't happen. We really didn't have that much of a heads up in the intelligence community about the, the, the various factors that contributed to the Arab spring. Uh, to really understand what was going on and what ultimately took place. Uh, and, Wait, now uh, are was, you uh, saying
1: that the intelligence community, which we spend untold billions on, didn't know what was going on in Egypt, in Tunisia, Libya?
2: Well, no. I, elsewhere, look, obviously, uh, our people on the ground uh, were aware of what was happening. But to kind of step back and look at the Middle East as a whole, and the fact that these factors were impacting uh, in each of these countries uh, and creating the same dynamics uh, that uh, resulted in people going to the streets and wanting change in their government. Uh, And I, I just don't think we had a good handle on all of the factors that were at play here, whether it was social media, whether it was the economic conditions that were impacting on young people, whether it was their sense of frustration uh, with whatever government they were dealing with. Uh, to, to see all of that suddenly come together, not just in Libya, not just in Yemen, not just in uh, Egypt, not just in Syria, but all throughout the Middle East, uh, was, a, was a very uh, important event that took place. And I, I think we were not prepared, frankly, to deal with how we would respond hmm. to, uh, to what was happening. And that, uh, that's something that uh, I think we could have done a better job at.
1: So that answer was prompted by my question of what was your greatest regret as CIA director? And I should throw in as Secretary of Defense, are you saying we did the wrong things when the Arab Spring erupted?
2: No, it's not that we did the wrong things. It's just that we didn't really try to develop uh, approaches that would try to create some uh, some sense of stability uh, in these countries. And I, I think it's largely because, you know, we really didn't put together the kind of alliances that we needed uh, with countries in that region, whether it was the moderate. Arab countries, uh, UAE, uh, others uh, work. You know, working with the Saudis uh, as well as uh, Jordan, uh, having a sense of what is the cultural background of these countries. What's the tribal background of these countries? Understanding uh, what would be the right approach to trying to direct them in a way that would result. Uh, in, uh, in governments that would be more stable and would provide opportunity uh, to the very people that were concerned about their countries. Um, so, I, I, think, I think we just did not have the right response to how we would try to assist these countries and, pe- and leaders in those countries to do the right thing on behalf of their people.
1: You know, I think that that would be pretty unsettling to a lot of people, especially taxpayers who put billions of dollars into our intelligence systems, Um, putting aside the cynics in Washington who say that the CIA could never get anything right. Uh, So uh, not to get too far down into the weeds on this, but would you say that we switched horses too quickly in Egypt, for example?
2: Yeah, I I think we, we, uh, you know, we were trying to determine uh, what was the best course for some degree of stability uh, in in Egypt, uh, and uh, you know, frankly, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, just did not to turn out to be a very effective option uh, in dealing with the uh, situation in Egypt. Uh, and with regard regards to Libya, you know, after we had uh, defeated uh, Gaddafi and uh, had uh, you know, had had seen at least the semblance of an effort to try to organize some kind of governance uh, in Libya, Uh, it it suddenly resorted to its tribal instincts uh, and really never came together. So part of the problem is that we really just did not understand enough about each of these countries and the dynamics in each of these countries to try to develop a stable approach. That's probably the bottom line.
1: All right. And we can hope that that situation has been rectified, that we have people in the intelligence community who uh, have a better grip on world affairs, uh, and especially that region, than they did in your time. So let's flip the card and say, let me ask you, what is your greatest pride, as CIA director in particular, Getting Osama bin Laden, I would guess, would be at the top or near the top.
2: Well, there's no question that I think uh, the whole effort to go after the leadership of Al-Qaeda and those that were involved in the attack on 9-11, to be able to, on on behalf of our country, make sure that a 9-11 attack would not happen again. Uh, And obviously... The centerpiece of that strategy was the, was the mission to go after uh, bin Laden, uh, develop the intelligence, develop the operation, uh, and then successfully carry out that mission. Uh, there's no question that that was uh, a moment that I'll always be proud of, mainly because it was a team effort uh, and also, I think, sent a message to the world that nobody attacks the United States of America and gets away with it.
1: So the message was repercussions. But to you, the teamwork involved, and we have had in the past disastrous efforts at teamwork, uh, for example, trying to rescue the American hostages at the embassy in Tehran. And so this was really the acme of that uh, effort to create multi-force, multi-agency teamwork in the area of counterterrorism.
2: Yeah, no, I I think that's absolutely right, Jeff. Uh that, you know, what, what had developed prior to uh, that operation was that coming out of 9-11, uh, there was a sense that if we were going to be effective at dealing with this uh, this enemy called Al-Qaeda, that we were going to have to develop a relationship between our intelligence capabilities and our special forces military capabilities. Uh, They found that uh, that kind of effort was absolutely essential uh, in going after uh, the terrorist targets. Uh, And ultimately it really became uh, the centerpiece of our counterterrorism effort was to have intelligence and special forces working very closely together in order to identify targets and then carry out those operations. And that, that teamwork is what came together uh, in going after bin Laden. The intelligence uh, capabilities of, of, you know, following uh, the couriers uh, to bin Laden, identifying them, uh, following them to the uh, compound where bin Laden was, the intelligence analysis that went on when we determined that there was a family uh, that matched the bin Laden family living on the third floor of that compound, uh, the ability to kind of look at every aspect uh, of the intelligence uh, so that we knew generally what was, what was happening with regards to that compound uh, and uh, the security measures that were being taken, and then to have special forces come in and actually, then put together the operation itself uh, to uh, send two teams of SEALs uh, into Pakistan uh, to rappel down into that compound and go after mm-hmm. uh, Bin Laden. That combination was one of the most effective uh, military intelligence capabilities that I think uh, I've seen in a very long time.
1: There's a new book coming out by former intelligence officials that are that is again going to defend the use of enhanced interrogation techniques, which is widely known as torture, uh, you're, you came down very firmly on the side that we don't need to engage in those kind of practices anymore. Is that correct?
2: Uh, that's correct. I uh, as, When I became a CIA director, uh, on the day before I uh, went to the office, uh, President Obama uh, issued an executive order uh, that got... Uh, got rid of the enhanced interrogation techniques. Uh, and um, I, I, I think that while I understand uh, the context that people were operating in at the time and the fear that uh, that Al Qaeda might very well uh, have other attacks planned against the United States, uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I agree with, uh, with those in the FBI and in the military who felt that uh, we could gather that kind of intelligence uh, without having to resort to uh, torture.
1: Mm -hmm. I was just watching a documentary the other night about uh, Richie's Boys, the uh, operatives, uh, World War II operatives, mostly Jews, who were trained in special operations uh, and spying uh, and sent into uh, France. Um, And it's really interesting, near the end, they say, uh, they were also used to interrogate German prisoners, and they said the best technique was not force, not torture, but just conversations and eliciting information. But yeah, moving along from that.
2: I watched, I watched the same program, and I, I had the same, same reaction that uh, they thought the uh, the best approach was to get friendly with who they were talking to, share yeah. their concerns, yeah. develop a relationship, and, and they got the information they needed.
1: Right, and and you probably know that a former Luftwaffe interrogator testified to much the same after the war, that he got a lot more out of captured Allied pilots and so on by just establishing a relationship with them. But moving along, you've also written in your wonderful memoir, I really enjoyed it, by the way, that it's the CIA's director's duty to tell uncomfortable truths, as you put it to the president. What's the most difficult, uncomfortable truth that you told President Obama?
2: <laughs> well, I have to think about that one. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's important if you're an intelligence. And I remember telling the president this uh, when he nominated me. I said, uh, you know, in the end, uh, my commitment is to telling the truth to power. Uh, I think that's the role of intelligence. That's and our he
1: said. He, he said he wouldn't want it any other way.
2: That's right. No, exactly. He said. Uh, he said I I I want you to do that. And and to his credit, uh, he did. You know, he did want us to uh, present uh, the facts as we saw them, uh, and uh, and and that's exactly what we did. And you know, I I can remember. Uh, difficult presentations, particularly with regards to Afghanistan uh, and uh, what we saw happening there that indicated that, you know, all of the positive pictures that were being painted about what was taking place uh, in Afghanistan uh, did not really reflect what was happening on the ground. Well, uh, in, in, we had in to make d- those presentations.
1: Indeed, my former Washington Post colleague Craig Whitlock has written in depth about this that the generals were lying to themselves, lying to their superiors, and lying to the public for years and years and years about progress in Afghanistan. I I know that you were aware of that.
2: Yeah, so how do you come back? How do you combat, back in, do you the combat Security that? Consul, that's basically the exchanges that took place.
1: Yeah, and it was most have been some very trying moments.
2: Yes. It, it's, uh, you know, I I I think it's important that uh, that when you're presenting uh, that kind of intelligence, uh, that you can't you can't reflect and you shouldn't reflect uh, what the policy decision ought to be with regards to the president. As a matter of fact, by law, uh, intelligence uh, personnel are supposed to make the presentation, uh, but not engage in the discussion about what approach the president should take. Mm. Uh, And that's probably not a bad idea because, uh, you know, as as long as you can present the facts uh, and then ultimately uh, basically allow the principals then to discuss what approach uh, should be done based on those facts, uh, that really is the role of a CIA director and uh, for that matter, the director of national intelligence.
1: But it is still pretty astounding that it took a really talented investigative reporter to get that story out after what 16 17 18 years the public was not really aware that the generals themselves thought the war was a loser
2: yeah no i think uh, i think what happens is uh, you know there. are you've got a lot of forces on the ground you've got people that are losing their lives they're putting their lives on the line uh, and uh, you know there is a sense that you have to you have to show that that sacrifice uh, is not being lost that we are in fact uh, trying to accomplish the mission so I don't you know that the generals that I work with I don't assign devious people uh, uh, methods to to mm-hmm. what they were saying i think they were really trying to reflect the hope that the mission would in effect uh, you know
1: they hoped it would turn out better year after year
2: that's right exactly
0: hi i'm Jean meserve you're listening to my co-host jeff stein interview former cia director and defense secretary leon panetta we hope you'll subscribe to the full spy talk podcast series wherever you get your podcasts And for more unique, in-depth material on U.S. and foreign intelligence operations, visit the Spy Talk page on Substack. Now, back to the interview.
1: Of course, in your term of Secretary of Defense, you dealt a lot with Russia and China, the threats and challenges from them. What worries you the most about our situation in the world today? Is it China's encroachments in the Western Pacific, Russian threats in Europe, North Korea's nukes, Iran's <laughs> uranium enrichment, enrichment. Pick, pick one or put them in order. But during your time, what was the, what was the most unnerving threat, you might say?
2: Uh, you know, you, just in, in the way you, you presented that question, it's a reflection of uh, uh, the number of flashpoints we're dealing with uh, in uh, the world. The kitchen's
1: before. on fire.
2: 21st century, it's uh, no matter where you look, uh, you're dealing with a, uh, another threat. Uh, and, and you've mentioned them all. Uh, China probably at the top right now, uh, only because uh, I think they themselves have made clear that they're going to try to uh, take over uh, as the world's uh, major power. Uh, Russia, obviously, with Putin uh, being much more aggressive, uh, we're in a second stage of the Cold War. Uh, with Russia, uh, North Korea and their nuclear development, uh, Iran and their threats to develop a nuclear weapon. Uh, what's happening with these uh, these failed states in the Middle East uh, represents a, another uh, challenge to the United States. Uh, and terrorism uh, remains a, a threat as well from ISIS as well as uh, other uh, versions of Al Qaeda uh, that you are still, still out. About- but let, about let, let me let me answer sure. your, your sure, basic sure. question. OK, your, what worried me then and frankly, what's worried me now uh, is. Uh, is an area that I think we have not really developed the kind of response we need to, which is cyber. Uh, I think cyber is the battlefield of the mm-hmm. present and the battlefield of the future. Uh, and as we've seen from the cyber attacks that have impacted on the United States, whether it's on election institutions from Russia, or whether it's uh, solar winds, or whether it's this recent effort to shut down a major pipeline uh, mm-hmm. to the East Coast. I think what it tells us is that we are, for, for whatever reason, we have not developed the kind of defenses, uh, and probably for that matter, the kind of offenses we need in order to be able to respond to those attacks.
1: I'd like to ask you about that. Just recently, I was talking with Jack Devine. You probably know him, the former senior operations official at the CIA for more than 30 years. Yeah. And he was saying that it's really time, past time, that we warn Russia in no uncertain terms. That it's going to pay a heavy price for continuing to interfere in our political life, particularly our elections, and that we will repay them in kind if they don't stop. He he was suggesting sort of a mafia style sit down with them. You know, out of public view, say, look, got to stop or we're going to turn out your lights. We're going to shut off your oil. We're going to start taking out your people. Um, What do you think of that?
2: Well, I I have a feeling we passed that line a long time ago. And, uh, you know, we've been uh, we've been issuing all kinds of warnings, uh, to the Russians about, uh, what they've done with these cyber attacks against the United States. Uh, and, you know, obviously I, am not read in on, uh, on the intelligence, uh, in the last few years, but, uh, I, I have seen no evidence that we have responded in kind. Uh, and I think that it is important when you are attacked, Uh, the way we have been by the Russians, again and again, uh, to send a signal to them that makes clear that we can do the same thing to Mm -hmm. them. Uh, I think that is an important signal that should have been sent a long time ago.
1: It's been said that in the past, we have actually done that. We've done sort of a little wave through the screen. Hello, we're here. We've turned their lights off and on uh, just to give them an idea that we're here and we can do the same. Um, but as far as, you know, it hasn't gone beyond that.
2: No. And I, I think, uh, you know, I, as I said, I, I'm not, I'm not aware of just exactly what kind of, uh, offensive, uh, methods we've used, but, uh, I, I think that, uh, these countries are not going to pay attention unless, uh, you make clear, uh, that you can make their life uncomfortable. Uh, as a result of uh, uh, of what they're doing. Uh, they have largely undermined stability in our country by virtue of what they're doing. I've, I have said, and I said it when I was Secretary of Defense, that my greatest fear is that we could suffer a cyber Pearl Harbor in the future that would literally cripple our country. Uh, I think what we saw happen uh, in these last few days, uh, where a major pipeline can be interrupted. tells us that if you use a a sophisticated virus, you can probably take down our transportation systems, our chemical systems, uh, our water systems, our power systems, uh, our financial systems, our legislative systems. Uh, You can shut this country down. Uh, And uh, what we have to do is not only develop better defenses, to deal with that because my greatest worry right now is that between the Chinese and the Russians that they have placed viruses already within our infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, that could ultimately be activated in the future. Uh, I, I hope that we are uh, doing to them uh, some of the same things.
1: There's been some reporting uh, that uh we have been doing some of those things to them, at least tickling their wire, so to speak. Um, Some experts worry that Russia and China will team up to attack the West. What are your thoughts on that? And did you consider that during your terms as CIA director and secretary of defense?
2: Well, there was no question that uh, we saw uh, China and Russia and Iran and North Korea Developing their cyber capabilities uh, and uh, putting a, putting a larger investment uh, in that area, uh, and for that matter, uh, using cyber uh, in their various uh, uh, military uh, plans, and that something that the United States, frankly, was doing as well. Uh, the, the threat of China and Russia coming together and operating as a team was not present at that time. But I think as a result of uh, these last number of years uh, and the fact that both Russia and China read weakness on the part of the United States in terms of our response, I think it created a greater incentive for them to try and work together. Whether they can uh, is still a question, but it nevertheless represents a potential threat for the future. Did you
1: ever discover signs of serious Russian meddling in our elections in 2008 or 12?
2: Uh, Not, not to the extent obviously that we saw happen uh, in 2016. Uh, Look, I think uh, yeah, it isn't uh, it isn't a secret that both the United States and Russia uh, have been trying to influence elections uh, in various parts of the world uh, for a long time. Uh, and uh, but but obviously, uh, cyber introduces a whole new weapon to that task, uh, and so. Did we see evidence of them trying to influence uh, elections? Uh, Yes, Uh, particularly in other countries, uh, more so than in the United States. But uh, I think the reality is that they now see, as a result of what they did in 2016, Mm -hmm. a very successful effort to create chaos in this country. Uh, Right. They're not going to forget that lesson.
1: They've been trying to influence American politics since not long after the Soviet Revolution in 1917 1918 but they never really found fertile ground here but just to nail this down you did detect some efforts by Moscow in the 2008 and 2012 elections they just weren't getting any traction is that what you're saying
2: I think to, to put it uh, to put it accurately it, it just it was not out of line from what they had tried to do in the past uh, in terms of uh, you know, trying to influence uh, some of the approaches to uh, elections or those involved in elections. Uh, that, but it was a pretty amateur approach to trying to impact on our elections. They've, they've obviously learned a great deal. About uh, America and our use of social media uh, and have really kind of used that as a centerpiece to develop a very bold effort to try to undermine uh, our election systems
1: can you can you say anything more about those amateur efforts not really sending agents here uh, manipulating social media
2: no it, it's ba- it's basically the uh, you know the effort to uh, you know, use use uh, some media uh, to try to get uh, messages, messages across, Uh, try to use some influence on some of the players uh, that are involved in elections, try to see if you can gain a foothold with some of those uh, individuals that Mm -hmm. uh, are working in elections. It was Mm -hmm. really, uh, it was really uh, an approach that was uh, not, not in any way as direct as what we've seen recently.
1: I can imagine them really getting behind the candidacy of Sarah Palin, for example. (laughs) What a way to stir chaos in our system. Well, let's turn to another sunny subject, North Korea. Um, It's been widely reported that uh, President Obama told incoming President Trump that his biggest problem was going to be North Korea and pay attention to it. Um, He did in his own way. One scenario of a conflict with North Korea has them taking out Seoul very quickly and stopping and waiting to see if we would trade, say, Los Angeles for Pyongyang with an exchange of nuclear missiles. Did you uh, contemplate that during your time in office at CIA or the Pentagon?
2: Well, I mean, I, obviously, there are, there are all kinds of conversations that go on about Uh, possibilities, but frankly, the main focus of our concern at the time was their ability to uh, not only develop nuclear weapons, but develop uh, the kind of weapon that could be placed at the top of a missile uh, and the kind of missile that uh, would be able to attack our homeland. That was really the primary focus Mm -hmm. uh, of our concern.
1: And now they have them. it seems that they have missiles that can accurately to one degree or another strike at least the west coast and maybe beyond that um, if they were to take out seoul what would what do you think the united states action would be start a nuclear attack attack them
2: i i think we would uh we would be forced to respond in kind, uh, and I think that uh, that is pretty much uh, the approach. That uh, if they indeed tried to take out Seoul, uh, that uh, the next step would be to take out Pyongyang.
1: And then the next question is, well, what happens the next day?
2: Uh, yeah, no, I I think uh, I think you've raised uh, the uh, the issue of escalation uh, and where it stops and. Uh, I don't Does anybody know, that, know? I don't know that anybody really knows the answer to that.
1: All right. Another fun question. Iran and Israel. Um, you write quite in quite a lively fashion about your your talks with the Israelis when they were chomping at the bit to launch a unilateral attack on Iran. Your discussions with Ehud Barak, your friend, as you call him. It seems like you had a very good relationship. And you said, you guys shouldn't worry about we having your back because you can't really take out Iran's nuclear program on your own, but we can So don't worry about it. If they get a a usable nuclear weapon, uh, we're going to take care of business. But Prime Minister Netanyahu has threatened again and again, and been very militant, even speaking to our own Congress, that he's ready to take action. What's the state of play on that right now? And do you think the United States can still persuade the Israelis that there's no big win in them for unilaterally attacking Iran?
2: Well, it, you know, it's it's hard to say how the uh, the, the last four years. Uh, in the Trump administration uh, probably provided Netanyahu with a pretty free hand uh, in dealing with uh, uh, threats as he saw them from Iran. Uh, Whether or not uh, Israel can be constrained uh, is probably uh, dependent on the kind of case that uh, the United States can make that, you know, we We obviously have Israel's interests uh, at heart. We are bound to them uh, in terms of their defense. Uh, But at the same time, uh, in dealing with Iran, uh, the fundamental issue is, can we stop Iran from developing a nuclear weapon? That's the fundamental issue that we're all concerned about. Uh, And the United States shares that concern with Israel. Now, from an intelligence point of view, there have always been differences as to how fast uh, Iran could develop that kind of weapon. And uh, as a result of uh, having uh, stepped away from the agreement, uh, the nuclear arms agreement, uh, and allowed uh, Iran to further enrich fuel, uh, they probably are a hell of a lot closer uh, to developing a nuclear weapon today Mm -hmm. than they have been in the past. Having said that, uh, I think the case has to be made to Israel. Uh, you know, can we find an effective and verifiable way to restrain them from moving forward uh, and be able to enforce that? It's in your interest as well as our interest. Uh, is it worth is it worth that effort? Uh, and I think that's the way to kind of approach Israel. Uh, saying pretty clearly that we still have the same goal in mind if they develop a nuclear weapon that is unacceptable to the United States and it's unacceptable to Israel. But in, in trying to uh, get them to back away from that threshold, I think that it's in Israel's interest to uh, support the United States in this effort. Uh, look, Israel, uh, I, I understand their mentality. I understand that they feel, that they've got to do everything necessary to protect their country. I understand that. Uh, But at the same time, I think the bottom line is that if war were to break out uh, in that part of the world, Israel would need the United States to come to their defense. Uh, And rather than force that issue, doesn't it make a hell of a lot more sense to try to see if we can find a diplomatic solution first?
1: There there seems to be um, a consensus now that Iranian civil authorities may not be in total control of the government. Um, and with recent actions by the uh, Iranian Navy or the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary God Corps Navy, it seems that there are elements in the Iranian government that, wanna, that don't want a nuclear agreement either, uh, who, who seem to be chomping at the bit for a conflict With Israel and the United States, which seems to be a big losing proposition, but they're going to think what they're going to think. Have you been following it closely? And is that your observation as well, that uh, we don't really know who's speaking for the Iranians right now?
2: Jeff, I think you've touched on uh, what is perhaps the most volatile issue uh, in dealing with Iran right now, is that nobody may be in charge Uh, And if that's the case, uh, and you continue to have these incidents uh, that we've seen recently uh, in which attack ships are going after uh, our U.S. Navy vessels, uh, in which harassment is taking place with regards to uh, our vessels as well, uh, and where there seems to be an indication that the IRGC is doing their own thing, or at least elements in the IRGC, are doing their own thing, uh, any misstep in that area could very well lead to war. I mean, that's the bottom line. And yeah. right now, uh, I worry that if there are elements that are doing their own thing uh, and creating these issues of harassment, uh, what what is going to happen is a misstep of some kind mm-hmm. that is going to result in retaliation. Uh, yeah. And that Could very well have us at war. Right. There's
1: a lot of people who think the same about uh, U.S.-China conflict in the South China Sea. As we know from history, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the um, the war games in 1983 in Europe almost led to an exchange, a nuclear war. Uh, This can happen. This is not the stuff of Hollywood and and movies. Uh, This is actually. Happened that we came very close to nuclear war. And it seems like we're on tenderhooks as well in the Middle East, as but even more so in a way with China, where you've got ships in the night, if you will, cruising about, challenging each other's right to be on a spot on the water. Uh, that's got to be something that keeps you up at night as well.
2: Well, yeah, there. I mean, there are several... Uh, important problems with China. Uh, Obviously, uh, the South China Sea uh, and the need to ensure that uh, we have freedom of the seas uh, and we maintain freedom of the seas uh, in that area, uh, despite their effort to militarize uh, some of these islands in the South China Sea. Uh, That's certainly one area of friction. The other is Taiwan. Uh, The uh, Chinese uh, continue to be much more aggressive about threatening Taiwan Uh, and to a large extent uh, the United States uh, has made clear that, uh, you know, that uh, that would be a very dangerous step for China to take Mm -hmm. and could very well result in a war uh, in Taiwan. Uh, You know, that's an away
1: game for us, it seems to me that they could take Taiwan. I I think that's generally the consensus. Um, it would be like taking, uh, you know, us taking Bermuda, um, in a sense. Uh, but it, China would pay a big price internationally right. for that's doing right. so. But they have their own domestic issues as well, their own hawks who are saying time is running out, um, and we, we've got to grab Taiwan now. So that's that's a big problem.
2: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that... Uh... That's the concern. Uh, although, you know, the history here of China uh, has generally been one of always looking at the long term rather than the short That's
1: right. That's right.
2: Uh, and I think uh, we always have to keep that in mind that uh, they have never tried to, um, uh, to suddenly uh, take us, take a step that could very well uh, involve war. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 and so I, I think, yeah, I think that there will be those that will argue for that in China. I think that uh, nevertheless, I think the leadership in China understands that uh, their first priority is to build a strong economic force in China that can use that capability in order to uh, place itself uh, in the number one position in the world in terms of not only uh, dealing with economic issues, but military issues as well. Uh, that's, that's what they're focused on, is that long range goal. Uh, and I think to suddenly go to war in Taiwan or go to war in the South China Sea uh, would clearly undermine uh, that effort because there's no question that the United States uh, would have to make them pay a price.
1: My guest today is former CIA director and defense secretary, Leon Panetta. And going back to home now, we, uh, I think everyone agrees, we really have to shore up our own politics to get some sort of national consensus going. In the last few days and weeks, uh, I think I've sensed real serious alarm growing that the Trump extremists takeover. Of the Republican Party presents a national security threat. After all, their rallying cry now is the big lie about the elections—that the elections were stolen. We used to be able to kind of kind of shrug this off. It's just crazy stuff, but now it's congealing into a real powerful uh, potential threat to our democracy. Now, in Germany, you probably know that they've announced that uh, they're gonna put anti-vaccination activists, some who are backed by Russia under surveillance as a threat to their national security. Do you think that the CIA and FBI should be taking similar measures against right-wing activists and elected officials now who are undermining our democracy with lies about vaccinations and elections Uh, They are putting into place the pieces of a blockade, you might say, to invalidate not only President Biden's election, but future elections of a Democratic president. That if if this Trump-controlled Republican Party gains control of the House and the Senate, that they could invalidate the election of the next Democratic president. That's a national security issue. What should we be doing about it?
2: Well, you've identified what uh, I think without question is uh, is a national security issue for the United States. Uh, you know, when we talk about national security, we always focus on military power. We always focus on diplomatic power. But the reality is that the stability of the United States, the political and economic and social stability of the United States is critical to our national security. Uh, And what we've seen happen, uh, particularly on January 6th, where uh, an insurrection took place of the United States Capitol, uh, and one that brought our democracy to a stop. Uh, The threat of that kind of domestic terrorism Uh, really does represent a threat to our security, uh, a threat to our stability. And then if you combine uh, that kind of uh, domestic terrorist threat with this uh, approach to uh, basically telling untruths about what's happened in this country, what happened in the election, uh, the big lie, about uh, who really got elected in November, uh, and try to use those kinds of statements and untruths in order to create uh, a political movement in this country. Uh, I think we have to be wary uh, of, of what can happen to our democracy. Our democracy is fragile. I don't think we can take it for granted. And therefore, I think it is really important for the FBI, for law enforcement, to focus on those kinds of domestic terrorists whose principal goal is to undermine stability in this country.
1: hmm Now, separating the terrorists from the enablers is, is very difficult. I mean, we have battled for hundreds of years now over intrusion into the private lives of citizens, going back to the Alien and Sedition Acts under President Adams, um, the Watergate abuses and so on, and even some uh, actions that President Obama took uh, on on national security grounds uh, to investigate journalists, um, leaks, prosecutions, and so on. So. What do you do about officials who are elected, who are committed to destroying our democratic form of government?
2: You know, uh, I'm often asked the question, uh, do you have to choose between security and our freedoms? Uh, And I don't think you have to. I really don't in our country. I think we can protect our security and at the same time protect our freedoms as well. Uh, But to do that, I think we we really have to make sure that we elect leadership in this country that is committed to protecting our freedoms and our democracy and our security. Uh, I think the ultimate answer here still has to rest with the people in this country. That's the ultimate check in our democracy. Uh, And I think that there are, and I I believe this with all my heart, I think the vast majority of the American people understand what's right for our country, understand the craziness that's going on today with a a small element in this country, uh, and understand that in the end, we all have a responsibility to protect our own country, to elect the right kind of leadership in our democracy, and to prosecute those who would try to undermine our stability and violate our laws. I still think that's the best approach to be being able to defend our democracy.
1: Well, maybe that worked in the past. Uh, you and I are almost the same age. Um, We didn't have anything like Fox news to contend with growing up, but here you have, and I don't want to dwell on this forever. And I know your time is limited, but here you have uh, a broadcasting outfit with an immense audiences, absolutely convinced that the elections were stolen and other conspiracy thinkings. They turn that into votes for candidates. And the Republican Party's actions this week to expel members who challenge that big lie uh, speaks for itself. So we really do have a different kind of challenge um, in our system. There's no way we can shut down Fox News, right? But it's poison.
2: Well, look, you know, you mentioned RH. I think. Uh, the fact is we have we have seen uh, threats to our democracy in the past, going back to the 30s, going back to people who used to go to the radio and uh, demand that we become a, a socialist country, uh, going back to uh, people who uh, wanted to make sure that uh, we isolated ourselves from the rest of the world. Uh, going back to Joe McCarthy uh, and all the concerns he had about the threat of communists. Uh, We have had had those in the political arena, in the media who have all tried to preach untruth and ultimately the truth wins out. And although uh, I share the concern about uh, seeing the kind of lies that are being talked about today, I really think that in the end, the truth will prevail uh, and that, uh, you know, this country has survived a hell of a lot uh, in our over 200 years of existence. Uh, And the reason we've survived is because ultimately our leadership and the American people ultimately do what's right. And I think they'll do that today.
1: Well, I sure hope you're right. I have moments when I share your optimism and other moments when I'm pretty gloomy. Well, you're talking to us from California, and so I have to actually turn to your uh, wonderful memoir, Worthy Fights, and read from it. The penultimate page, 466. Okay, it's a doorstopper, let's face it. (laughs) You write, after decades of commuting across the country, I'm home with Sylvia, your wife, in the house my father built. The walnut grove he planted still bears fruit and I still care for it. My sons are grown and I have families of their own. My father never went to college. Two of my sons are lawyers and the other is a doctor. America's gifts to me were not ideological or partisan. They were of opportunity and family and security. As Americans, we may disagree on everything from baseball to national defense but we're, we're united by our most basic needs and by the dreams we have in common. Which sounds like you're pretty happy being ensconced out there in the walnut grove. But <laughs> let me ask you on the way out.
2: As I, as I said, when I left Washington, I was going home to work with a different set of nuts.
1: But <laughs> well, let's raise it. Hey, do you miss the action? Come on. You got to miss it a little bit.
2: Oh, you, you know, I always do. Having spent over 50 years in public life, uh, you, you of course you miss the action. Uh, but I also, you know, have a son who uh, was elected to my old seat in the Congress, uh, and uh, I'm basically able to enjoy my thrills through him.
1: That's good to hear. Secretary Leon Panetta, former CIA Director Leon Panetta, it's always uh, fun to talk with you, and thanks so much for your generous sharing of time today on the Spy you, Talk Jeff.
2: podcast. Jeff, it was a pleasure to deal with you. And I, I appreciate uh, uh, your podcast uh, because I think uh, you're focusing on kind of the key issues that we've got to talk about.
1: Well, we hope so. Thanks a lot.
2: Jeff, that was
0: fascinating. He was amazingly reflective and also amazingly chatty for a former CIA director.
1: Yeah, you know, I've, I've interviewed several CIA directors um, and he's so engaging and, and actually warm, not clinical, um, very reflective, as you said, and, and he's just a pleasure to interview. And there's not a lot of deception going on there either that I can detect. So it's really enjoyable for me to be able to talk to a CIA director who is both voluble and uh, insightful great.
0: Thanks, Jeff. And thanks to all of you for listening. Join us again next week for another edition of the Spy Talk podcast. I'm Jean Meserve.
1: And I'm Jeff Stein. Pleasure talking with you. See you next time.
0: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.